agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined today by not only the illustrious professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin, I am also joined by one of my own colleagues, Emily Smith, a historian here at Oklahoma Christian University. Ken, Emily, welcome to the Politics Guys. Thanks, Trey. Thank you. Well, it's fun. We're, you know, we, we don't often get to do uh, three shows. So, Emily, welcome to the politics, guys. Uh, and, and for listeners, uh, Emily is a historian here at Oklahoma Christian University. Uh, and, and her focus really, and one of the things I know listeners are curious about, Ken and I tend to do more international work, right? It's, it's, it's civil debate on American politics and policy. But Ken and I, we like to push the boundaries of that definition, <laughs> right? You know, and take things into the international realm. Because that's actually your uh, historical expertise, isn't it, Emily? Yes. Yep. I mainly focus on uh, Europe and uh, specifically Ireland and women. <laughs> hey, it all works out. Uh, so yeah. for the show today, we've got a lot of uh, domestic, but maybe uh, even some, uh, well, some minor inter- uh, international things going on. We're going to start by taking a look at the Supreme Court and gerrymandering. We're going to move on from there and talk about the, the brouhaha over the National Archives and Trump and what he had uh, at his estate in Florida. We're going to talk about the possibility of ending stock trading for members of Congress, what's happening there, maybe even more. Uh, we'll talk about the open market. Act, which is a bill coming forward uh, on uh, device platforms. Then we'll talk about trucker protests and a potential party identification shift occurring in the United States. So we got a lot of things. Obviously, not all of that's going to be uh, on the uh, uh, on the preview, uh, but we'll we'll get through what we get through, and everything else will be on the full version of the show that is available to those of you who are listeners. But before we get that, we're going to have a brief break, and then we will be right back. Well, welcome back. So the first story that we're going to tackle this week is the Supreme Court. The the Supreme Court this week struck down a lower court's emergency injunction against an Alabama electoral map that it was claimed to be in violation of the Voting Rights Act. Now, the 5-4 opinion is not a ruling on the merits of the case, uh, but rather to send the case through the normal process and not allow uh, 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 the lowercase stay. Um, so this has been framed by many to be kind of an assault or maybe the opening salvo on an assault on the Voting Rights Act. Now, the merit issue is relatively straightforward. Does the Voting Rights Act require a second majority minority district uh, in Alabama? And then secondarily, uh, if they do that, would it violate the Equal Protection Clause? Now, the primary arguments, again, this was not a ruling on the merits, came from Kavanaugh uh, with a concurrence then um, and then a dissent coming from Roberts uh, and Keegan, who was joined by a couple of other of her colleagues. Now, both of them, though, do hint and in some cases state what they think might be happening on the merits, even though that's not the meat of the case. Uh, On the merits, Kavanaugh argues, he calls the issue, quote, unclear and confusing, end quote, uh, which is why he doesn't think that the timeline should be an emergency one. No party is a clear winner in his view. 
And as to the stay, Kevin argues that the case has nothing to do with the Voting Rights Act or the shadow docket, as he calls it, uh, in response to Kagan's dissent, but rather is simply to stay on the injunction because the law is, well, the election's coming up too soon. And currently, election law precedent says, look, we don't interfere as a court system with elections, state elections, if we're too close to a state election. And the fact that the beginning of uh, early voting is here in seven weeks, uh, uh, this would make it chaos in Alabama, according to Kavanaugh. Roberts went on to argue that the court rightly put the injunction in and, and they shouldn't overturn it. There was nothing that happened at the, low, uh, at, at the appeal level here that should have changed it. He didn't want an emergency case, but he didn't think that the court should institute the stay, which is what the, uh, the majority, the five majority had. Kagan joined with Breyer and Sotomayor argued uh, by not only by granting the stay against the evidence of the lower court, they're actually creating a merit level issue. They're forcing black Alabamans to suffer. And under that law is a clear vote delusion, end quote. So Kagan calls that the stay part of what she calls the shadow docket, something that's come around a number of times. Now, obviously, it's not just in Alabama. Florida has some issues going on with uh, uh, districts. South Carolina's had some issues going on with districts. But of course, this is maybe the the centralized issue here. So, Ken, I'm going to start with you. What do you think about the, the, again, not the legal ruling, but the the merits on this stay and then what we're getting hints of on the merits itself based on the concurrence and dissents? Well, you know, I, I, you know, I consider this court to be a, a, a partisan and lawless court, and especially so in uh, cases that involve election law and voting rights. And, you know, they, they outdid themselves this time in terms of the, the, the raw partisanship and the total lawlessness um, of this decision. I mean, th- this is a situation where the there's already Supreme Court precedents directly on point about districting in Alabama under the Voting Rights Act. And 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 th- those precedents more or less require the result that the um, that the three-judge district court reached in, in Alabama. And by the way, this is a three-judge district court that um, did a full fact-finding proceeding and where two out of three of the judges were Trump appointees. Um, and and it, the, it was the, a unanimous decision. Unanimous decision. One of, I mean, one of the judges was a Democrat, but my point is that the, the two out of three of the judges were, not, were recent Republican Trump appointees, and, and they were all unanimous. That There was no dispute um, that under the existing standards from the existing Supreme court precedents as applied to the facts of the case, there there obviously must be a, a second majority minority district in Alabama because Alabama is 27 percent black. Um, it has eight congressional districts. And under the Voting Rights Act, uh, that means that um, in in at least in at least a quarter of those districts to reflect the population, um, African-Americans have to have some opportunity to have their um, votes be um, weighted as significantly as white people. That, that's what the Voting Rights Act calls for. So now, what, there's, what there's about really the argument yeah. from Kavanaugh and from Roberts? Because, you know, uh, I mean, I, I don't think it's surprising. You know, we've had, as a matter of fact, the last time it was surprising was when you were kind of surprised in the opposite direction by the court's yeah. finding, right? Uh, right? But in this case, to, to say the precedent of, well, it's too close to the election to change it. No, that, that's ridiculous. It's not too close to the election to change it. Um, it's true that there's a line of cases which which the Supreme Court, which which the majority here is greatly distorting, that says that the federal courts shouldn't change the rules too close to an election. Um, 
But that there's never been a case before where that was ever applied uh, b- before the beginning of voting. Um, you know, there's an election every two years. So what the Supreme Court is saying here is you, you can never um, have a voting rights case decided in an even numbered year. Um, or in fact, you can never have a voting rights case decided until the, the illegal racial gerrymander has actually been allowed to give, be, be used at least once. Um, and, and the court has never had any rule like that before. And the, 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 the federal uh, district court, again, the three-judge court that included two Trump appointees, they addressed that question in their opinion. And, and you know, they, they noted that there were 11 maps um, that had been submitted in evidence in the trial that would have been acceptable. And they gave the the Alabama legislature two weeks, which would have ended yesterday if the Supreme Court hadn't intervened. So by yesterday, um, the, 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 the lower court decision said um, the Alabama um, legislature had the opportunity to choose one of those 11 maps, which which are already right in front of them, um, or, to, or to try to um, come up with a different one which could pass muster. Um, and if that hadn't happened by yesterday, then today, the court would have chose one of them. So this this would have been implemented by today. That's before any primary voting or regular voting begins. And that's plenty on time to not run afoul of, of the um, the court's rule um, that federal courts shouldn't intervene late in an election cycle. It, it actually, they're, they're making a rule that automatically means no matter how illegally racially gerrymandered a, 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 a state's legislative map is, it gets to go into effect at least once before a court can look at it. So now, you know, again, you know, you're the, you're on you're the lawyer. I'm the political scientist, and uh, you know, you even started by saying that you find the high court to have you know to to be a partisan one. So one of my questions, as I thought about this in terms of politics, was to ask and say, well, the the you know, the appellate court actually had, as you've pointed out, I was getting ready, but you 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 beat me to it. Two two Republicans were on the unanimous decision. What do you think explains the difference between the ruling at that appellate level and the Supreme Court. Like, in other words, so if it's just yeah. if it's just a partisan issue, why don't we see that partisanship going down the appellate chain? Let's put it that way, well, uh, it, and not yeah. just at the Supreme Court level. Well, it's because the judiciary is hierarchical, right? So the um, lower courts have to follow the existing precedent, and the existing precedent is super clear on this. So that so all all the lower courts had to follow that. Um, the the Supreme Court doesn't have to adhere to its own precedents. It can change its own precedents. So I think what the what the the the, the five Republican justices, other than Chief Justice Roberts, are saying is, um, we we know we're going to change the law here. We're going to gut the very last provision of the Voting Rights Act that we haven't already gutted, and we're going to greenlight all racial gerrymandering against African Americans. We know we're going to do that on the merits. So since we're going to do that when we decide this case next year. Um, why should we why should we let a fair election take place this year? Because because they have the, the privilege of knowing that they're going to change the law again. But lower courts don't have that. Lower courts just have to follow the law as it stands. So then in that case, why not just make the case an emergency case and, and issue the opinion? Well, because they would be constrained by the fact finding that was done in the in the in the tr- in the trial court. Also, the lower court here, I should explain too. This is a, an unusual kind of proceeding because, in a, in a typical um, situation of most cases that come to the Supreme Court, the way they get there is 
you have a trial in a trial court, usually a federal trial court, sometimes a state trial court, and then you have an, an appeal to um, a U.S. Court of Appeals or, or a state Supreme Court, which is a um, appellate proceeding with a, with a, a, a panel of judges. Um, and then you have from there, um, it goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court. But um, because the Voting Rights Act contemplates this, this timing problem that we've been talking about, that everything's always going to be in, in a hurry, um, it has special procedures that short circuit that. So um, instead of having a trial and then having an appeal to an appellate court and then having uh, an appeal to the Supreme Court, um, the trial and the appeal, uh, the, low, the trial and the first appeal are combined into one proceeding. So you have a three-judge trial court that does the fact-finding and the interpretation of law, and then that goes straight to the Supreme Court so that things move faster. So in, in this case, the, the trial court had a, had a trial and it found a lot of facts. And um, under the, you know, the, the Supreme Court doesn't have a, a trial proceeding of its own. So it, 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 the it, normal judicial rules would say it has to defer to the facts that are f found below. Um, and so that would, I think that would constrain the Supreme Court in terms of um, how quickly um, they could make these big, these, these big changes. That and, they, you know, they, and, and you don't think, and you don't think that would be constraining in the, in the normal process because they'll have the opportunity to here and again, what you were talking about, just for listeners, right? You generally have that, that, which court has original jurisdiction in the case of uh, a voting rights uh, voting rights act claims. It it comes up one effectively in that hierarchical system for original jurisdiction. Yeah, it goes it goes to a, a three judge trial court instead of a one judge trial court, and then it goes straight to the Supreme Court instead of going to a court of court of appeals first. So it's it's a faster process, but it's a it's a it's you know it has been a fairly fact laden um, type of analysis. But here the the facts were were found as they were found by the lower court, and the precedent um, um, the precedent supports the, the 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 Supreme Court's precedent and the facts in this case irrefutably support the ruling that came from the three-judge court in Alabama, which is why it was unanimous. Um, I suppose the other part of it, besides the fact-finding piece, and I, I'm sorry to drag on, but if the Supreme Court wanted to um, you know, make changes in the doctrine, if, if it wants to actually um, uh, gut um, all, all of the um, redistricting protections, which are the only part of the Voting Rights Act that it hasn't already gutted, um, 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 Section 2, that is, of the Voting Rights Act, then, then it would have to... Um, have an ordinary schedule of briefing and argument. And so even if it wanted to do that this term, it probably wouldn't get the opinion out until um, June or July. And by then it would definitely be running afoul of its own rules against interfering in a too close to an election. So if it wanted to, if, I mean, the, the Supreme Court interfered, but it interfered now. Um, you know, if it, if, it, if it followed the ordinary procedural course, then even if it rules um, in favor of Alabama, um, it probably wouldn't be um, in a position to make that ruling take effect until the 2024 election. Now, also, you know, the, the, the Alabama case, although this is the one that this week is going to come up to the Supreme Court, is not, in fact, the only one dealing with this question of electoral maps. As a matter of fact, also this week uh, in Florida, Governor DeSantis actually asked the Supreme, the Florida Supreme Court for an advisory opinion, which the court uh, today refused to give, uh, asking on the, the constitutionality of breaking up a long, about 200 mile long, uh, but historically African-American district in North Florida uh, for the represent for representative Lawson how do we think that some of these additional uh, again maybe I'm looking at Florida more specifically because that's you know once upon a time that's where I lived uh, but I know we have these elsewhere what do we see as this pattern here when it comes to what states are thinking about in terms of districting for either of you 
Well, I could answer it again. I didn't know if Emily wanted to jump in. No, no, you're you're good. Um, I'm I'm just kind of reading up on some things while I'm listening to all of these. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So the, go with for the states. It. Okay, I'll go for it then. So with the states, you have some different issues. Um, you know, in in Ohio and in North Carolina, you've got state courts that are right now in in postures where they've they've struck down their state legislative maps. And those state legislatures have to redraw. So we, we don't know what the maps are going to look like in, in Ohio or North Carolina yet. Um, um, that, that's potentially the case in Florida also. Um, the state Supreme Courts generally will make um, rulings based on their own state constitutions. Now, state Supreme Courts also can make rulings based on federal law. And if, if, um, um, if, if DeSantis in Florida had some concerns about compliance with the Federal Voting Rights Act, um, you know, it wouldn't matter if the Florida Supreme Court gave him an advisory opinion on that because a federal court could, wouldn't have to defer to that. Um, but but in the in the cases in um, uh, Ohio and North Carolina, the the gerrymanders that were held unconstitutional uh, were held unconstitutional under the state constitutions, not under any federal law. So um, in 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 those um, in both of the states, that has to do with unique aspects of the two state constitutions, which are not applicable outside the state and which in which are not um, cognizable under federal law, which means the U.S. Supreme Court can't actually reverse those cases. And that might be something historically, just to, to put into perspective here, right? The American system is one. The Constitution actually gives the right to determining how elections will, uh, national elections will play out primarily into the hands of state legislatures. <clears throat> but of course, mm -hmm. Congress then uh, uh, later on will create some additional rules. Now, really, the two biggest are you have the Supreme Court ruling uh, in Wesbury v. Sanders, which says that every individual has to have approximately the same amount of kind of mathematical weight as any other voter, right? The, the, the one person, one vote principle. Uh, and, and so you get that as a, as a constraint on states' ability to uh, uh, create their own national uh, election rules. And then, of course, the second that you're talking about here, and that's really kind of the, the crux of what's happening in Alabama, is the Voting Rights Act, which then creates, especially for historically, um, for states that had historical issues uh, with discrimination, uh, would actually have to go through a court process. Because uh, you had mentioned there, and I, you did it kind of in passing, Ken, so I thought it might be worth talking about. You were talking about, that. well, the only piece of the Voting Rights Act that's re really uh, matters anymore. Maybe take us through that just a little bit, because that, I don't think everybody always recognizes, okay, states have the primary ability to create these uh, national uh, electoral rules, but then there's a, there, the Voting Rights Act constrains it some, and, 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 and that has changed over time. Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, I can explain that. So I'll start with the text of the Constitution and then move a little bit into the history. So the, the text of the Constitution, as it was originally ratified in 1787, um, has uh, in, in Article 1, uh, Section 4, um, the, the rule about the allocation of power between state legislatures and, and Congress in terms of conducting congressional elections. And it says, uh, so Article 1, Section 4 says, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for U.S. senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law 
make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. So the, the, the Constitution um, presumes that state uh, that, that U.S. congressional elections will be conducted under rules that are made by state legislatures, but um, it has always said that Congress can alter any of those regulations anytime. So Congress can always make different rules and preempt state law on that. They just that, simply that, that, often have not. Yeah, well, sometimes they have. I mean, we, we have things, for instance, like a national election day, right? So states are not, you know, states have never been free um, to set the time of elections. True, um, true. Uh, Congress, Congress has always said that'll be on the first Tuesday after the first Monday uh, in November and, and other kinds of things like that go, go way back. Um, the 15th Amendment um, adds to that because after the Civil War, the, the 15th Amendment um, has two sections. So first it says the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So there can't be denials of voting right based, based on race anywhere or in any state. And also the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So in addition to the power that Congress always had to alter or amend state election law, um, Congress has a specific power to enforce um, the rule that the states can't um, um, have um, voting discrimination by race or denials of the right to vote by race. So Congress has some extra discretion in deciding what that means and how to implement that. So based on that, it actually took 100 years, but after after the 15th Amendment was ratified in um, 1870, um, it actually took all the way until 1965, so 95 years. But Congress did enact a pretty strong Voting Rights Act in 1965, and it was intended to make up for the fact that despite getting the 15th Amendment 95 years earlier, that in, in most sections of the country, um, as late as 1965, most African Americans couldn't vote because there were a lot of different kinds of restrictions um, that were preventing them from voting, um, Jim Crow type restrictions and others. And so, so the the Congress in the Voting Rights Act of 65 did a few different things. And by now, the Supreme Court, since 2013, has gutted most of those things. But these were in effect from 1965 to 2013. So, so one thing that the Voting Rights Act does is it basically makes it illegal for um, states to use eligibility criteria for who can vote that have a, a disparate impact based on race um, unless there's some some extremely good reason for it. And so in principle, that means that there, there shouldn't be things like voter ID um, because voter ID disproportionately burdens African-American voting um, and there's no good reason for it. Um, but but the Supreme Court has uh, gutted, gutted those provisions of the Voting Rights Act and allowed uh, voter ID to take place nonetheless. Um, uh, similarly, the, the 1965 Act had um, a, a provision that only applied um, in certain states and actually in certain counties, and it was based on um, um, how many how many African Americans voted in the 1964 presidential election in that jurisdiction. So, in in in, in jurisdictions where only one percent or fewer of African Americans were actually able to cast votes in the 1964 
presidential election, you know, extremely low number there. You know, for for for, for counties and states where almost no African Americans could vote, fewer than one percent in 1964. Um, those those um, um, jurisdictions were labeled as presumptively voter suppressing jurisdictions, and they were subject to a pre-clearance requirement where um, if they ever wanted to make changes to their dis districting or to their voting rules, they had to get pre-clearance from the Justice Department first, which, which had to rule that these were not done for the purpose of suppressing the, the black vote. And that is still part of the Voting Rights Act, but in, in it was never repealed, but in 2013, the Supreme Court held that unconstitutional. So now that's what opened up the floodgates since then, for, for these these um, these kind of things like like you're seeing in, in Alabama, um, where they're able to go ahead and enact and, and presumptively implement um, a racial gerrymander without having to first get the permission of the Justice Department. And until 2013, they wouldn't have even been able to enact that statute but without the Justice Department's sign-off. And then the, the final thing that you still have now, which is I think what they're going to gut now, is Section 2 does still allow these challenges after the fact, right? So Alabama although they didn't have to get the permission of the Justice Department first but before they enact the, this racial gerrymander, even though the Voting Rights Act says that they should have to, um, it's still possible now, um, once they implement a racial gerrymander, for, for, for African-Americans who are being disenfranchised by it to go to court and prove that they're uh, being intentionally disenfranchised based on race um, using certain standards that have been laid out in Supreme Court precedents. And if they can make that proof, then the Supreme Court can still, or, or the lower court or the Supreme Court, any court, could still find that, um, that, that the, the, the new map actually is a racial gerrymander and can't be allowed to take effect. So that's the proceeding that was used um, in, the, in the Alabama case now, that, that proof was made, that finding was made by a, a bipartisan court, um, but it seems that the Supreme Court, you know, may have an agenda right now. Uh, that 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 you know, that's that's the one and only thing that they haven't already gutted in the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and they may be getting ready to gut the, these causes of action as well. Now, I'm going to probably sound like a broken record on this uh, to say, well, you know, some additional some context here, right? So you, you talk about the 1964 Voters Rights Act and how in, in Georgia specifically we have districts where you have minuscule uh, uh, African American turnout. And, and I think for many, there th th there isn't an, a real understanding of how recently some of those very strict barriers were for African Americans. So, for example, even into the 60s in Alabama, uh, you know, we had grandfathered um, literacy tests required in many parts of Alabama. Uh, one of the things I make my uh, students in my uh, introduction to American uh, politics class do is take a piece of that uh, test. And, you know, none of them would be able to vote <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, on, on the great. basis of that test. Uh, I think a lot of times we think of those kinds of segregation pieces as being something that was a long time ago and it doesn't have kind of uh, pragmatic implications. But of course, you know, uh, the, the 60s is just, just a couple decades removed from, from me being born, let alone. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and you have this exactly. Feeling. Yeah. Emily, anything you want to talk into that? Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Um, I'm just kind of nodding along to everything that, that Ken has said thus far. Well, why don't we uh, take an opportunity to have a, a short break uh, for an, an ad, and then we'll come back and talk about the National Archives and Trump. Okay, so 
let's come back. You know, this week we had really some, uh, <laughs> it wasn't the kind of thing that I thought we'd have a conversation about, but I, I oftentimes <laughs> feel that way when it, when it comes to Trump news. Uh, this week it came out that the National Archives and Records Administration retrieved 15 boxes of documents and other items from President Trump's Florida resort because they were not turned over when they were supposed to be uh, back in January. Um, the National Archives retrie- uh, retrieved the White House records from Mario Largo, and Trump, already one for potentially skirting the rules, has never seemed to take history seriously in that front, uh, but has taken on potentially new heights. According uh, to the NARA, the material should have come back in January, uh, and that uh, Trump representatives, even right now, are continuing to search for additional records. Some of the records that we've already had our hands on, at least that have been provided to the January 6th committee, for example, had appeared to be destroyed and put back together after the fact to kind of uh, attempt to continue to apply, uh, comply um, with these laws. Now, there are some historic examples of presidencies uh, who have taken things they weren't supposed to. Most recently, for example, the Clintons uh, took a variety of furniture costing somewhere in the, in the vicinity of $30,000 that they claimed were gifts weren't really gifts and had to be returned to the National Park Services. Um, but yes. individuals close to this say that although we've had those kinds of things uh, happen before, that these kinds of boxes and documents are, in their words, at least, quote, out of the ordinary, end quote. Uh, later this week, the story continued to develop as the NARA asked the Justice Department potentially to examine Donald Trump's handling of White House records. Um, now, of course, this matter is preliminary, and there's really no way for any of us to know what's happening on that front uh, other than that potentially has moved forward. Now, in a statement this past Wednesday, uh, Trump said that he had a positive conversation with the NRA, the NARA uh, and had arranged for, quote, transport of boxes that contain presidential records in compliance with the Presidential Records Act, end quote. There's also a little bit of an irony here because, of course, this is precisely one of the things that Hillary Clinton on her most recent uh, uh, no was was potentially flaunting when she did not uh, properly store her emails. Now, you might remember those because that was something that Trump repeatedly brought up against Hillary Clinton, uh, something for which he had asked her to be jailed for. Now, additionally, in uh, all of this, there is a possibility that some of these documents, these 15 boxes, uh, contained things that included material that was classified, which also might be referred to the Justice Department. Uh, So, Ken, Emily, thoughts? Um, I'm just thinking from a purely uh, historical standpoint, you just yikes so much yikes <laughs> in one word um, yikes okay i'm 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 having flashbacks to you know when they torched the library of alexandria which no i'm still not over uh, which isn't quite comparable but still you're destroying valuable records um and it also kind of reminded me of nixon and his uh editing or someone's editing anyways of uh all of the various tapes involved in watergate so um, I think they cut out a lot of Nixon's colorful language um, and also possibly some evidence, <laughs> too. So, yeah, that's that's kind of my take, M- mainly, oh, no, and, and we need to get them back and for him to stop destroying things. Ken? Yeah, um, you know, I I think the the um, violation of the Presidential Records Act here um, is is unusually blatant and willful, even though, as you noted correctly, 
you know, it, almost every president since the, the Presidential Records Act was enacted in 78, but pretty much every president has had some technical violations of it and, and some small violations of it, and none have ever been prosecuted for that. And so, you know, the, the, if, if, if anything, if, if any criminal um, uh, con- pr- prosecution is brought against Trump, it's obviously going to be, there's going to be accusations that it's political because nobody's ever been prosecuted under this before and people have, have violated this before. But I, I don't think anyone's ever violated it in, in quite as um, uh, blatant and, and willful uh, and really gleeful uh, a way as, as Trump has. You know, the, there's reporting today about this, this Maggie Haberman book that's going to come out that was was saying that the the maids and the, the janitors who work in the White House were constantly fishing, you know, pages that had been flushed yeah. down toilets out of the White House toilets. And, you know, the, the, the National Archives, even in the stuff that wasn't squirreled away to Mar-a-Lago that they already had, they had a lot of documents where he had like torn them up into tiny little pieces. And then later people collected up all the tiny little pieces and sent them to the National Archives. And they they had a staff that scotch taped them back together. And, you know, I, I think the sort of pattern and practice of, of really willful disregard for the Presidential Records Act does deserve um, pr- criminal prosecution, in my view. But I, I'm not holding my breath for that to happen. No, I agree with you. I, I don't think there's going to be any kind of major push, in part because it's clear, I don't think, you know, if you're the Biden administration, these things are already known. It's not going to change any particular uh, buddy's vote position. Uh, there's not a lot to be gained, I think politically, at least, from continuing to try to pursue these kinds of matters. I think you're right about that. Um, but I, I, I do think it at least it will make for, for those of us on the scholar side, a fruitful future for trying to kind of think through why and what was handled the way it was. was. I mean, one possibility, of course, is this is, the, this is just the way, this is just Trump's MO. This is what he's always done. And so uh, being one who doesn't understand the rules or care about the rules, never even figured it out, and just continues the practice that he brings into the White House. Of course, the more nefarious possibility is is that it's not just a, a, a practice that continues into the White House, but it was one, in fact, that is more targeted and designed to to, uh, to make it more difficult to understand what was happening um, in, the, uh, in the White House during his tenure. Now, as a matter of fact, just a kind of a, an interesting historic and technological note, you know, uh, even George W. Bush did not send emails, neither did Clinton, uh, or use a lot of digital communication in large part because of questions about what they'd have to record and what would end up having to go over um, to the National uh, Archives and Records Administration. And so uh, it, it, uh, your first email, you know, I, I believe I'm getting this right, I, I think George George W. Bush sent three. <laughs> uh, <Wow>. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not until you get to Barack Obama that that's a big uh, shift. As a matter of fact, Barack Obama would uh, reorganize the office of the president to include uh, a, a social media, uh, L, a formal social media element institution. Now, that'll get changed uh, later in his second term. And then as we get into Trump's administration, because again, social media is not kind of the, the hot, me, uh, hot deal that it was once upon a time in the same kind of way, thinking of it uniquely. Um, so, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it, I, I guess there's not a lot to I mean, maybe speculate there, but I mean, what do you guys think? Do you think this is more of a kind of just put it back there? Is this Donald Trump just we see this as him, the personality. It comes in the White House. He doesn't care and know about the rules, and he's doing what he's always done. Or do you see this as being more, more, uh, more purposeful? Well, 
I, I think it's both. I mean, for one thing, it doesn't seem like much of a defense. Like if, if I'm driving 100 miles an hour down the highway and I get pulled over and I say to the cop, well, I mean, I always drive 100 miles an hour. You know, that's not going to be a defense. OK, it's funny that you say that. And I, I'm, I don't mean to interrupt you and I want you to finish yeah. that thought. But as a matter of fact, exactly 24 hours ago, I had a student say and at, basically asked me that question. They're like, listen, I always speed. So if somebody pulls me over, could not always say like, listen, I've always gone down this road. <laughs> and yeah. I had to say, no, that's yeah, not how that works. Yeah. So it's really so, funny yeah. that you break that up. Yeah. So I mean, I, I can certainly believe the the facticity of the statement that he he habitually, he learned back when he was a crooked businessman to always tear up everything. And it just became his habit to tear up every paper. And that's why he did it. But that's not a defense when he's under an obligation as president to preserve all the presidential records, which are, in fact, the property of the United States government, not his property. Um, but but also, I, I think, you you know, it is seeming to turn out in addition to that, that, you know, some of the things that are missing, um, and, and I'll tie this back to what you said about email, although it's true that um, Clinton and Bush didn't use email, um, they did talk on the phone, their phone calls were not recorded, but their phone logs of what numbers they talked to and, and how long they talked to them were records that, that are part of their presidential records. Um, well, some of those kind of records are missing, particularly the ones from January 6th, right? So the the, the logs of, of who Trump was talking to on the phone at what times and for how long um, on January 6th um, are, are among the missing documents. And, you know, I, I don't think I wouldn't put that down to just his ordinary habit of tearing up paper because that that's not the kind of paper that would have been on his desk to begin with. You know, the, the, the records of um, what phone calls he made, that's something that he must have actually sought out and ordered to have um, made disappear or torn up. And and that that's a you know, I think that's a serious violation of um, well, it's Section 20. 2071, if people want to look it up, Section 2071 of the of the U.S. Criminal Code, Title 18, um, uh, makes it a, a federal crime punishable by up to three years um, for a person who has custody of a a record. Um, uh, it, that person willfully and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, falsifies, or destroys the the, the public record. Um, so um, I, I think there's a criminal intent there. For some of these records that, that would not normally have even passed across his desk, that it wouldn't have just been within the normal course of his habit of tearing up paper to tear them up. Well, let me put this in a broader question, then we can put this one to bed. <clears throat> one of the things that I have thought about in this term, you're talking about how you know, Trump is kind of running roughshod over, I mean, he did, all, all kinds of, uh, of criminal and other kinds of, of law. This brings me back to a book, and I'm not, I'm not sure if either one of you guys are familiar with this, but back during uh, George W. Bush's administration, there was a, uh, a right-wing pushback to some of the what was seen as being kind of the overarching uses of the presidency during the, uh, uh, George W. Bush's administration. Uh, and most famously of this is a guy named Gene Healy writes a book called uh, The Cult of the Presidency. And he pushes back against the idea uh, that we want to have big, powerful presidents and that having big, powerful presidents are uh, something that Republicans should be behind. Uh, and just for a little bit of a, of a history lesson, you know, he, he points to the fact that as you begin kind of with the Reagan administration, there's this Article 2 interpretation that says that the president's going to get a lot more power. And, and where that comes from is at the beginning beginning of Article 1 and Article 2, there are these similar but slightly different worded phrases. In Article 1, there's this phrase that says all the legislative powers herein granted 
are delegated to the uh, uh, to the uh, to the president, excuse me, to the Congress. And then in Article two, though, it says the executive power is to be vested in uh, uh, the uh, the presidency. And, and, and that ended up eventually being considered a, a grant of power. And what Healy and others were pushing against was to say, if you give that kind of power to presidents, what will eventually happen is that there's really no effective pushback from any of the other branches. And when I look at the Trump presidency, uh, Ken and Emily, what I see is maybe some of Healy's arguments coming, I think, man, that was, it was a good point. So here you have somebody pushing, violating these acts, but is there really any effective way to 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 stop uh, a president who violates the law uh, regularly? And, and it seems to me the answer is no, and that the problem isn't just Trump. And I think one of the things I wonder about is, was the problem Trump or was the problem that we've had an office that allowed a man like Trump to act the way he did? And I'm kind of curious about each of your takes on that. Um, I actually think that it's it's the thick, sorry second thing that you said. Um, I think the assumption has been, for whatever reason, that we wouldn't presumably that we would have more sense or whatever. Um, I I don't particularly like Trump, so um, that we wouldn't elect somebody who would exploit what looked to me to be like loopholes there that that nobody would come in and just take advantage of the fact that, as you said, who's going to tell the president no? Um, and then we wound up with Trump and, you know, here we are. But um, so I, I kind of think that it's more that the loopholes were there and the assumption was that we wouldn't ever have somebody that would exploit them. And then now we do or did. Jen, what do you think? Yeah, well, I probably actually would separate two things that I think you were you were linking a bit. Um, so there's the notion that um, because the at least since the Youngstown Steel case back in the 50s, the, the vesting clause of Article two that vests the executive power in the president um, has been seen as a kind of broad and independent grant of power to the president. Mm-hmm. And that that has facilitated a great growth in presidential power. So that was one of your points. And you were kind of linking that to the idea that it's it's hard to hold the president accountable to law. Um, yes, I actually, yes. I, I, th- I think those are two separate issues, so I wouldn't necessarily link them. Like, I, I, I certainly agree descriptively that um, the modern interpretations of the vesting clause have shifted a lot of power to the president and made it made it much much more powerful than than it would have been um, before World War II, say. Um, but I, I don't actually think that that is the structural difficulty about holding presidents accountable to, to law. Um, I think that that if if um, if, if the, the, the real problem there is is kind of more with politics, because I, I think the Congress has the tools and the subsequent Justice Departments have the tools um, to enact laws that w- that can be enforced against presidents, at least when they leave office and sometimes while they're still in office um, and and to and to, to, to use them both to constrain the power of the president in certain ways while they're in office. And to, and to hold them accountable through civil or criminal liability when they, when they leave office. I think we have those tools already, and that if you don't see them being used, it's not because. I, I, so so for instance, you know, on the one hand, you have the question: 
you know, who can hold Trump accountable if he violated the Presidential Records Act and destroyed or stole all these records? Well, I would say, well, you know, Congress passed the Presidential Records Act. Congress passed statutes that, that have criminal penalties for, for mutilation of public records. And the Justice Department can bring prosecutions under those statutes. And there's, there's no doctrine that would give Trump any kind of immunity now that he's out of office. So I, I think despite the fact that, you know, presidents are powerful, um, the, the legal tools are there for holding people accountable. And, and if that doesn't happen, I think that's a function of a defect in our political culture more than a defect in the laws. Um, the, 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 I, I see the growth of, of executive power under the Youngstown Steel Doctrine as, as more being about um, not necessarily unleashing the president to do things that Congress thinks should be illegal, um, but just giving the president um, a little more power to respond to emergencies um, where there's not not quite enough law on the books one way or the other to make it clear whether um, what the president needs to do is, is legal or illegal. Um, and, and I don't see that as a terrible doctrine. So I, I actually think it's okay to have a robust conception of the presidency where the executive power includes broad powers to respond to emergencies when there's legal ambiguity. I think that's okay if it was side by side um, with a with a stronger political culture that would say when, when, when laws have actually been enacted into law that, that control the president's conduct and the president violates them, um, then even right while he's president, courts should should hold those things illegal and make him stop doing it. And and when he's not president anymore, if he's committed crimes, he should be prosecuted for them or sued for for civil liability or whatever. I think we could have both. So I don't. I don't necessarily uh, link the two things the way you did. Okay. I mean, I, I guess I still would. I, I, I still think, politically speaking, to have the will, you have to have an institutional structure that balances. And I think that uh, that post-modern understanding of the presidency is one in which Congress doesn't have as much effective pushback. And I'm just not sure, you, know, you point to the Justice Department, I'm just not sure that that kind of framework is one that really would reign in presidential power. But I'm going to put a pause on that conversation because we have actually come to the end of our free and supported preview. Uh, and so, uh, listeners, I want, you, I want you to know that if you'd like to listen to the rest of this, this is available to our supporters. And you can hear the entire episode. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation. We're going to talk about uh, ending the stock trades. We're going to talk about open market acts and more uh, coming up. Uh, but that's going to be here after uh, the, uh, the this preview ends. So if you want to become a supporter and become part of this... Uh, uh, you can head to patreon.com slash politics guys. You can also support us at PayPal at politicsguys.com slash support or through Venmo where we're at politics guys. Again, that's patreon.com slash politics guys or at politicsguys.com slash support for uh, PayPal or through Venmo where we're at politics, guys. Now, if you're not in a financial position to support the show, but you would like to be part of that, you can reach out to uh, Mike at politicsguys.com so that he can set you up with access to the full uh, ad-free version each week. Uh, and you can take a look there at the other possibilities. There's additional levels of support uh, and things you get like joining us on Discord uh, and more. So if you'd like to uh, do that, yeah, you can again head to patreon.com slash Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. I hope you'll continue and uh, support us for the full show.